You're listening to the Radio Podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages that John Blanchard presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982. John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, author, former co-director of Christian Ministries, and an international conference speaker. Now, here is John Blanchard on Today in the Word Radio. Now we're turning today to the second chapter of the epistle, which of course means the letter of James. And we're going to be looking in this study at four verses. We covered just one verse yesterday, chapter 1 and verse 17. Uh, today in chapter 2, we're going to look at four particular verses. And let me introduce by saying this. It has been said and well said that a text without a context is a pretext. And I think that's very cleverly said. But so often we can just pick out a word, a verse, a phrase from and flog it to death and miss a great deal of what it really means because we've not seen it in its wider context. And I want us to bear that in mind as we look today at James chapter 2 and verses 11. And let me give you the title to our study straight away. It is The Christian and God's Law. Now, many of you are avid note-takers. It's one of the most encouraging things when one is in a Bible teaching ministry, taking notes. And the heading you need is The Christian and God's Law. Let me also say, by way of general introduction, uh, that you need to notice that these verses, these four verses, uh, which cannot be context, are part of a passage of Scripture, a segment of teaching that begins at verse 1 and ends in verse 13. Begins at verse 1, ends at verse 13. In fact, the uh, New International Version very helpfully makes a division at that point. And it heads the first 13 verses of James 2 uh, with the words, Favoritism forbidden. That's James is considering. Favoritism forbidden. And he gives, of course, the uh, brilliantly clear illustration in verses 1 through 4. Two men, two strangers, come into the church one day. One of them, obviously, he's got a, a gem at every joint and a nugget at every knuckle. His, his hands are dripping with rings, and he's wearing a beautiful suit of clothing. Uh, and... Alongside of him comes another poor, shabbily dressed and they are treated differently. Maybe they've got a building program on in the church, or um, maybe they're just ordinarily greedy, and they, they look at these two men and say, well, now, uh, here's the man with a fine suit and so forth. Sir, which seat would you view from there? Why don't you come a bit closer? This is the best seat in the house. Why don't you have this one? And the poor man is just treated like dirt. Well, if you want to stand over there, or if you must sit somewhere, why don't you sit on the floor right here? And James says, and the point is brought out uh, so clearly in the NIV, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There is wrong motivation of these two men. They are treating the rich man in the hope they can get something out of him. They are treating the poor man badly because they know that no hope of getting any subscription towards the building fund from him, so he may as well just sit wherever he can. 
James is condemning behavior towards our fellow men which is based on worldly or material considerations. The, the whole point that he's going to make is we must treat men as We must not treat them at least on the basis of material and worldly considerations. And at this point, he examines such behavior as being in direct uh, relationship to law. And our study today has only two headings. We'll open them out somewhat considerably, but just two headings. The first is, notice with me how the law is described. How the law is described. If ye fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. The law is described as the royal. Now, in what ways can we see that to be true in Scripture? Let me suggest these. First of all, because its source is royal, because it comes from a royal source. In the United Kingdom, when we have a coronation service, and of course the last one was now many years ago, there is a very lovely point in that service when the incoming monarch, king or queen, is handed a copy of the And as she is handed that Bible, these words are spoken. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And very beautifully, in our coronation service, uh, we have a quotation from the epistle of James. This is the royal law. And let me say it again, because its source is royal. Its author is royal. God is the author of this book. 4,000 times in the Old Testament, the Bible claims to be God's word. 700 times in the Pentateuch, the first five books in the Bible, the most disputed part of Scripture. But 700 times you come across the phrase, God said, God spoke, thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord came. In one chapter, God said, God spoke, God came, God commanded, the word of the Lord came. Now incidentally, will you, will you notice with me that if those statements are not true, then not only not the best book in the world. It is positively the worst book in the world because 4,000 times in the first section alone, it tells a blasphemous lie about its own origin. And the person who says, the Bible is a good book. I acknowledge that. It's a fine book. It has marvelous teachings. It's a moral book. It's a book uh, whose teachings uh, we ought to follow. And if we did, the world would be a wonderfully better place because we'd be following such exalted and moral turns around and says, but I just don't happen to believe that it's the word of God. Now, how can you have a good, moral, upright, just, righteous book telling 4,000 blasphemous lies about its own origin? You cannot have and eat it. Uh, the same is true, of course, of the people who would say, and they say to me all the time when I'm involved in a lot of uh, grassroot eyeball-to-eyeball evangelism in our uh, universities and schools and colleges and in private homes and elsewhere. 
will say to me, now we think Jesus was a wonderful person. Oh, please don't misunderstand us. We think he was a great leader, great teacher. Of course, he, his moral teaching was marvelous. And we do believe that he taught righteously and all of those things. We just don't happen to believe that he was the son of God. I mean, that, that's just, we just happen to have that little difference, you see. We don't believe that he was divine. We believe he was good, great. We're prepared to believe he was the greatest man who ever was moral and upright beyond any that the world has ever known. But we do not accept that he was divine. Then if Jesus was not divine, why did he keep telling lies about it? Why did he keep saying, you've seen the Father, I am in the Father, and the Father in me. He who honors not the Son honors not the Father, and so forth. Jesus did not give us the luxury of debating whether he was the Son of God or not. He said that he was. And a lie there at that point, how can we trust what he was saying at any point? And therefore he too does not become a good man or a great man or a righteous man or an honorable man or a moral man. He becomes a liar. Blasphemous liar at that. So much for the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are 600 quotations from the Old Testament, and all of them taken as being divinely authoritative. The New Testament itself. Let me give you uh, just a couple or three scriptures that are really very remarkable and uh, which you may not immediately have come across. The first, uh, um, don't take time to look them up uh, unless you're not taking notes. If you're taking notes, you'll only have 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says this, If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is God's command. Paul had no doubt about it. He said, now if you think that you're a prophet, you think you're spiritually gifted, you think you've got divine insight. Now, if you've got divine insight into the truth, you will acknowledge immediately that what I, my words are God's command. Or again, very remarkably, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 2. Peter urges his readers to recall this, the command given by Lord and Savior through your apostles. You see what Peter was saying? The two prepositions he uses? He said the commands have come from Christ through the apostles. Speaking Christ's words. They have that authority. And then in Revelation 1 and verse 2, John claims to be writing nothing less than what he calls the word of God. Let me say what I here this week in perhaps slightly different fashion, how tragic and ironic it is that there is a debate about inerrancy in the Christian church today. No debate in hell. The devil knows that the Bible is the word of God to his great discomfiture. No debate. The only truly biblical view that there is of Scripture is that it is the inerrant, infallible, and perfect word of God without fault in every, in every way and on every subject. It is a raw and the Bible is beyond all books because its author is beyond all authors but secondly we could call it the royal law because its subjects are royal not only is it 
subjects are royal. Now, there is a sense, a correct and wide sense, in which the Bible is for every man. It's relevant to all men, regardless of their relationship or lack of it with the living God. And man must therefore reckon with God's law. With the law of God as we have it in Scripture, that is to say, with God's spiritual law, just as surely as he must reckon with God's physical law. Now, a man may say, I don't want anything to do with God's spiritual law. I don't acknowledge it. I don't believe the Bible's the word of God. Nothing to do with it. In fact, I don't even believe that there's a God and I'm having nothing to do with the so-called laws of God, be they spiritual or physical. Now, a man is entitled to do that. Man's entitled to perform any kind of stupidity. But yet, there is a sense in which a man must reckon with God's laws. And there's nothing he can do about it. Take a man to the top of the empire and push him over the top. And before you do so, say, now, of course, you realize there's no God and there's no such thing as a law of gravity which says that an object falls at the rate of 32 feet per second per second. You just don't in laws. Now, you just allow me to push you off the top of this building and let's just see whether you can defy the law of gravity. Now, that man on his way down, he can argue about it. He can scream and holler that he doesn't believe in the law. But he'll soon discover it works. So you cannot defy the law of gravity. It's there and we live subject to it. We drop something, it falls. We didn't decide the rate it was going to fall. We didn't even decide it was going to fall. That law is already built in, and we live subject to God's physical laws. But we live to God's spiritual laws. And there is the very strictest sense in which we cannot ignore them. We can say we don't want to obey them. We can refuse to obey God's directions and commands, but we cannot, at the end of the day, ignore spiritual laws. If a man breaks God's physical laws, he loses his life. If a man breaks God's spiritual laws, he loses his soul. And there's nothing he can do about that. So in the strictest sense, God's laws. Yet, having said that, the law has two distinct purposes. The Bible helps unbelievers to find Christ. The Bible helps believers to follow Christ. Let me just open. The Bible helps unbelievers to find Christ. Galatians 3.24. Paul says this, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law put in charge, you'll remember the King James, was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Paul says that was the purpose of the law. You'll remember that the law didn't come right at the beginning. The, The commandments didn't come on the day that God created man. That came after man had sinned. Then the law was given to show him that he had sinned. The straight edge of the law showed man how was. And it did more than that. It shut man up into such a position that he cries out, at least that is God's uh, desire and longing for him, that when he sees how crooked he is compared with the straight edge of God's 
And when he sees that the law cannot save him and that he cannot obey the law in order to be saved, then he cries out to God for deliverance from that position. And the law becomes our schoolmaster to to Christ. Paul is saying that in their unconverted days, the Bible's purpose was to reveal his readers' guilt and rebellion against God and their helplessness. And then having done that, to show them that their only hope was in accepting God's way of salvation, which of course was in Christ. The Bible helps unbelievers to find Christ. The Bible helps believers to follow him. One of the most powerful of the unity and authority of Scripture is that every part of it points to Christ. You remember in John 5, the Lord Jesus taking the Old Testament in his hand and first of all, commending and then condemning his Jewish readers. He commended them. You search the scriptures. In our King James, we have it as an imperative, search the scriptures, but the original language certainly indicates that uh, the reading should be, you search the scriptures. It wasn't a command. It was an acknowledgement of something they did. You do search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these scriptures testify about me. Now comes the condemnation. And you will not come to me that you might receive life. That was what, if I may say it carefully, Jesus' heart. He said, there are you Jewish people searching the scriptures because you believe this is the word of God and this is where you'll find the word of life. But what you haven't seen is this. These scriptures are speaking about me and in order to have life, not to the scriptures, but to the one of whom the scriptures speak. And the hymn writer has it so beautifully, Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit longs for thee, thou living word. We're not saved by doctrine. We're not saved by theology. We're saved by Christ. And so we could say that of all scripture. And therefore it is all written for the blessing and the benefit of the children of God, conformed to the likeness of God's Son. The purpose of the Bible for the believer is to enable him to walk the royal road of righteousness. William Gurnall, that remarkable Bible commentator, many generations ago said the Christian is bred by the word and he must be fed by it. Now that's beautiful. I wish I'd thought of that first. The Christian is bred by the word of God and he must be James says that God has begotten us by the word of truth. Tells us that in chapter 1. And Peter says in one of his epistles that as newborn babes were to desire the of the word that we may grow thereby. We are bred by the word. We were born again by the word of God and we must be fed by it. Its source is royal. Its subjects are royal. Here's the third thing. Its standards are royal. One of the old Puritans, Ezekiel Hopkins, once said this, The Bible is the statute book of God's kingdom, wherein is comprised the whole body of the heavenly law, the perfect rules of a holy life, sure promise of a glorious one. Its standards are royal. Here is the king of laws. And notice that James picks out one in particular. 
We're still in verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law, that's the phrase we're studying, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, why is that a royal law? In say that that is royal. And where does it bear on our heading that the law's standards are royal? When Jesus was asked to name the first commandment in the law, and you will know that the meaning of that was the most important commandment in the law, the reply he gave was this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, was taking the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and he was splitting them up into two sections. The first section, the first four commandments, all have to do with our relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength the last six all have to do with our relationship with our fellow men about not killing not committing adultery not stealing not bearing false witness and so forth so jesus summed up the first four our relationship with god in one phrase love the lord your god he took the last six commandments to do with our interpersonal relationships and summed them up in one phrase love your neighbor as yourself. The single phrase, love your neighbor, perfectly encapsulates the way in which God expects us to behave toward our fellow men. It sets a royal standard for the children of the king. Now, obviously, as James says, those who really keep this law are doing well or, or doing right. But you see, the point that he is making, and remember my earlier comments about context, he is obviously in we're not keeping the royal law and loving their neighbors indiscriminately as themselves. They were discriminating. They were saying, now, we'll act lovingly towards that person. We'll kowtow towards that person. Sure that we take care of that person because you see that person is wealthy or that person has influence or that person could help me in my career or my ministry and so forth but this other person down here well we're not going to take any care of them not any notice of them ignore them does that speak in any way to our hearts making distinctions between people on the basis of their position or authority or wealth or influence the Bible sets a higher standard. The Bible demands that as children of the king, we act indiscriminately, impartially, without showing favoritism toward all men. That we love all men regardless of their... regardless of how they act toward us. Do you know that that is the real meaning of the word love? If ever there's a word that's misused in the world today, it's that word. When the Bible speaks of loving a person, this is what it means. That regardless of what they think, regardless of how they behave, regardless of what they do to us and about us, we will act towards them in a way that is deliberately calculated to bring about their blessing and their greatest good. Now that's what love really means regardless of how anyone else acts towards us or what they say or what they do, we will deliberately 
and do about them the things that will, in our judgment, be calculated to bring about their highest good, their greatest blessing. You only have to look at the greatest example the world has ever known to see what Jesus did. And when we rejected him, despised him, esteemed him as nothing, he deliberately set about doing that which would bring about our greatest good and our highest blessing. In that remarkable book called Through the Valley of the Kwai, Ernest Gordon tells of the transformation that took place in that Japanese prisoner of war camp in the year from Christmas 1943. In 1942, the camp was a sea of mud and filth. The prisoners undergoing grueling, sweated labor. Food becoming dead. The law of the jungle prevailed. Every man for himself. The weakest went to the wall. Twelve months later, there had been a total transformation. The ground of the camp had been cleared and cleaned. Bamboo slat beds had been debugged. Green boughs had been used to rebuild the huts. And on Christmas morning in that camp, there were 2,000 men at worship. What had happened? year one man had died just to many people an ordinary prisoner but during his last illness he shared his last crumb of food with other prisoners the last food that he had he gave to another man and then he died when they buried him cleared up his belongings they found among his belongings, a Bible. And they asked the question, was this what changed his life? Was it following the teachings of this book that made that man live the way he did? To read it. Was this the secret of his life, of his willingness to give to others and not to grasp for himself? For himself? And they began to read. And one prisoner after another reading was converted to Christ. And the whole camp was transformed. And in 12 months, spiritual and moral revolution had taken place. And men were lifted from disgrace to dignity by the living word of the living God. When the Bible is lived, men are lifted. It is the royal law. Its standards are royal. Let me ask you whether you are walking the road of righteousness. Oh, not just loving to study the Bible and analyze it and use it as a kind of mental exercise and so forth and rejoice at nice little phrases and so on, but are you walking, are you obeying the royal of the Word of God? Well, that's how the law is, is described. Then secondly, let me share with you how, or rather, what the law discloses. What does it disclose? If that's described, what does it reveal or disclose? James moves from what the law is to what the law says. And remember, he's still relentlessly nailing down this bit about favoritism, about calculated partiality. 
one with another. There are two things I see here. First of all, there's, there's guilt at which we should mourn. There is guilt at which we should mourn. The casual reader might ask, and you may be asking, whether James isn't making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill, really. I mean, all of this section in the Word of God about forbidding favoritism, I mean, we're being treated well, uh, surely he should be going on to more important things than that. To show favoritism or not to show it seems a, a pretty small kind of thing. Is selectivism as serious as that? Well, it's serious because of the words James uses about it. Um, look now at verse 9. If you have respect to persons, that is, if you do show favoritism, then James says two things. You commit sin transgressors. Two words. And there are two main Greek words for sin in the New Testament. One is the word hamartia, which means missing the mark, and paraptoma, which means trespassing or overstepping. Hamartia is the mark, paraptoma, overstepping the line. Those are the two main words for sin in the New Testament. And James, would you believe, draws both words in together in one sentence and says, respect to people, if you act differentially towards people, you are actually committing sin. In fact, I'm going to make it so clear to you, I'm going to use both of the major Greek words for sin in describing what it is that you are doing. Doesn't that tell us an important lesson? that the sin that we might think is really quite a trivial thing is in Scripture a tremendous thing. There is no such thing as a little sin because there is no such God as a little God and all sin is against God. There is no such Bible as a little Bible. There is no such law as a little law. There is no such little God. There is no such sin as a little sin. And no sin is to be regarded as small because the God who forbids all sin is so great. Minimizing sin is a device of the devil. You should never fall for it. Then James develops the seriousness of it. Verse 10. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. The logic is irresistible. The law, James is saying, is a unity. Therefore, one sin means the entire law is broken. We're not to think of the law of God as being like a pile of rocks. And you remove one rock from the pile, and really nobody notices that it's any different. And it still performs the same function, and it looks exactly the same, and really you could say, as near as makes no difference, no change has been made. No, the law of God is not to be seen as a pile of rocks from which you can remove one without any significant difference. The law of God is like a pane of glass where if once the whole pane is broken. And how many illustrations we could use about that? And do I use in my work of, of uh, evangelism? Let me tell you one that I'm uh, using all the time. Now I'll have to try to uh, uh, Americanize it. Um, I'm driving along... Uh, one of the streets in downtown, 
at 70 miles an hour. And uh, I'm stopped at the end of the street by an officer of the law who says to me, sir, we had a radar machine on you and you were doing 70 miles an hour down the middle down St. Petersburg. And I said, yes, wonderful cars these Japanese make. And uh, he said, well, never mind, uh, never mind the compliments about the Japanese cars. I'm going to book you for doing 70. And I said, now, sir, uh, I'm a visitor to this country, and I really do not know American road traffic laws. But as it happens, I've got a digest of them right here in my pocket, and I, I just want to check things out with you. You see, the law says that I've got to have two white lights on the front of my car. Would you like to check that they're there? And two red ones on the back. Would you like? It says I've got to uh, have an insurance certificate. Here it is, right here. It says I've got to have a driving license. Here's my driving license. And I go right through. Now, let's, for the sake of, of uh, simplicity, say that there are 100 provisions in the road traffic law. I go right through and I say, there's number 97, and I've kept that. And I'm 98, and I've kept that. And there's number 99, and I've kept that. Now, there are, what, sir, there are 100 sections in the law. And I have kept nine, and all I've broken is this miserable little uh, section that says I've got to keep to 30 miles an hour or whatever it is in downtown St. Petersburg. Now, sir, you're a reasonable man. 99 out of 100 is a pretty good, do uh, you think? Now, do you know what he'll do? He'll say, well, sir, I had not thought of that before, and I must say that that really is. 99 out of 100 is better than most people. Uh, have a nice day and drive at any speed you like. Well, now, of course, American policemen may do that, but although you think British policemen are wonderful, let me tell you that they wouldn't do that. And he would say, I'm not interested in the 99 bits you kept. It's the one that I'm concerned about. And having broken one piece, the whole of the law is broken. The law is fractured. Imagine one of these. I saw these uh, kids at the school uh, practicing soccer yesterday. My heart rose, I thought. These smart people around here. Uh, they're forgetting that silly American football game and learning a real man's game at last. They're playing soccer around here. Now imagine one of those boys uh, kicks that uh, football into a... breaks the window. Oh, just in a corner. It's a big window, say 10 feet square. And he knocks a hole in it, six inches square. And the principal comes to him and says, you've broken the window. You're going to have to pay X dollars. To and the boy said, sir, could I just say something? That window, you see, is so many feet square, and I've just broken a little bit six inches square. So why don't we find out what proportion of the window I've broken, and then what proportion of the cost of the window uh, I've incurred, and I'll just pay you all those dollars. The principal would say, but you've forgotten something. You only broke one little part of the window, but the whole window is broken. Do you see the point? This is a devil for the non-Christian trying to obtain God's favor by his own good works. The Bible says in Galatians 5.3 that such a person is obligated to obey the whole law. Or again in Galatians 3 and verse 10, cursed is everyone who doesn't everything written in the book of the law. The real problem facing the person who says, look, I am going to try to do my own thing, live my own life, set my own standards, and do my very best to live up to what I 
example, is teaching the royal law and all of those things and the golden rule and the Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments, and I am going to do my very best. And I have done so well that I cannot believe that God will turn me aside at the end of the day. You see, what person is up against is this. That God says, once you set out upon the road of saying, I will make myself right with God by obedience to the law, is this. You must obey the whole law in every part, every moment, or you are guilty in God's sight of breaking the entire law. But my friends, there's a demanding word for the Christian too. And the word for us is this, that we're not allowed to pick and choose our virtues. We're not allowed to say, well, I'm going to obey this bit of the law, but not going to take too much, pay too much attention to that bit of the law. It's not like an examination paper that says well, there are ten questions and only six need be attempted. We're not under law, but we're still under orders. We're still under authority. We're not under the law in the sense that we have to obey the law in order to be saved but we're still under the authority of the law of God and we're under a serious obligation to seek to obey it in every part of our life in order that our lives may be pleasing to God. And in the light of that, which one of us can honestly claim to be living as we should? Is there anyone in this beautiful, sanctified place who could say, well, I have the royal law before me and I am obeying the royal law in every detail, I'm living as I should. There are no gray areas in my life. God is my obedience to his law. Isn't it true, as the old Puritan John Trapp said, if the best man's faults were written in his forehead, it would make him pull his hat over his eyes. Isn't that the truth? If your faults were written across here, you'd go around with a sunshade right over your eyes so nobody could see. Well, that's the principle in verse 10. And in his usual style, and he's a very pictorial writer, that's one of the things that I found interesting in, in uh, seeking to expound the epistle of James and to write about it. He follows his principle with a picture in verse 11. He that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art a of the law. The point is clear. For a murderer to say, but I haven't committed adultery, therefore I'm clear, I've kept the law, is absurd. For the adulterer to say, oh yes, I've committed adultery, but I've never killed anyone. Why, James says that's ridiculous. And remember too, and how interesting that James chooses these two parts of the law, these two parts that Jesus expounded and explained so that adultery can become the lustful look or thought and murder can become the bitter hateful thought now which of us can plead not guilty on both charges the law discloses the guilt over which we should mourn And secondly, I see here the grace at which we should marvel. If there's guilt over which we should mourn, then there's grace at which we should marvel. John Calvin once said this, James seems more sparing in proclaiming the grace of Christ than it behoved an apostle 
He didn't go quite as far as Luther, who said that this was an epistle of straw and uh, didn't really like it at all. But he said, oh, it seems to me that James doesn't say as much about the grace of Christ as he ought to as an apostle. Well, I'm a great admirer, but I think he was up the creek uh, on this particular occasion. I think he missed the point. I'm sure he was wrong, although it, I agree it's not always on the surface of what James wrote, and there's a good example here. I've seen everything else that you've said, all your headings fit in, but where is the grace at which we should marvel in these verses? Where is it? Well, it's not stated explicitly, but it's suggested irresistibly. You see, we've been shown, which shows us all to be lawbreakers, all to be guilty. It tells us that every time we sin, we are violating God's law. Now, if we're sensitive at all to the voice of the Holy Spirit, we find ourselves crying out, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one is righteous before you. And again, we find ourselves saying with the psalmist in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who? Lord, if you kept a record, if you kept a record of all of our sins, Lord, who would be able to stand? How can we go on? How can we go on one more day when our best falls so short fire? When the scripture says not only that all of us have sinned and that deals with the past, but it goes on to say, and come, and the word is the present continuous, and all continue to fall short of the glory. Now, Lord, if you keep a record of all of those sins and every day of our lives we come short of your glory, how can we possibly stand before you? And there is your law which says that if we break it in one point, we're guilty of And it's just here that we need to be very clear in our thinking and to recognize our precise relationship to God in the matter of the law. You see, as Christians, we the most searching moral obligation to keep it in every part. And yet, we may dare to say this, just as we were not saved by our obedience to the law before we so we are not kept saved by our obedience to the law since we were converted. Because the question of being saved and of being justified is not a matter at all. I am always saddened when I meet a Christian who has a lack of assurance of their salvation, who seems unclear as to whether they're really in the kingdom of God or will remain forever in the And one of the points that they seem to have missed altogether is that the matter of being saved and the matter of staying saved is not a matter of law at all. We were not saved by obedience to the law, nor are we saved by obedience to the law. It's not a matter of law. It's a matter of grace. It's a matter, as Paul says in Philippians 3, about not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That's the wonder of God's grace. God doesn't lower his standards for us when we become. 
He doesn't say now, now that you've become Christians, of course, well, I can sort of lower the standards and really you can live any kind of life you like. It really doesn't matter now because now that you're safe and in Christ, then I'll lower the standards. But our justification of our being right with God, we are still treated as being in Christ. As far as our justification, not our sanctification, as far as our justification is concerned, our standing with God, as that is concerned, the penalty, the penalty for the Christian's every sin from birth to death, past, present, and future, for once for all in the death of the Lord Jesus. While the life of Christ in all of its perfection, in all of its obedience to the law, the life of Christ is credited to the And when Jesus died for us, it was a matter of grace. And when he lived that perfect life and then credits that life to us, it's a matter of grace. I want to end with one beautiful illustration of this uh, that happens in a very unusual uh, book in Scripture, the little letter to Philemon. This comes immediately before Hebrews. If you want to just turn it up, I think we just have time to do that before we close. So go back a couple of books from James to the letter to Philemon. And the story is there was a slave called Onesimus who belonged to a man called Philemon. The slave's name meant useful, but in fact he was useless. He ran away from his master, probably stole some property as well, and uh, way to Rome where he met with the Apostle Paul who led him to Christ and was now sending him back, sound in wind and limb and converted into the bargain. Now that's the background of this little letter to Philemon. And in verse 15, Paul says this, If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself, or welcome him as you would welcome me. And in verse 18, If he or oweth thee aught, put that on my account. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Now, these two things. Let me take them in the reverse order. If this man has done any wrong, if he charge it to me, I'll pay it. Secondly, when he comes into your presence, welcome him just as you would welcome me. Welcome him on the basis of the relationship that you and I have together. And the Lord Jesus says this to his heavenly father. He points to the Christian. He points to the If they've done any wrong, whatever sin they have committed, charge it to me. I'll pay for it. And then he says this, and when they come into your presence, as you would welcome me. Do you see that? All of our sin debited to Christ. All of his righteousness credited to us. 
so that all of our sin is paid for by him and we are received by God as being in Christ. The Father receives us with the same openness as he receives his own Son. The grace at which we should marvel. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, Lord, fetter. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it from thy courts above. May God bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, your law still causes us to tremble. And we remember that your word says, to this man will I hearken, even to him who trembles at my word. And we would or carelessly but though it causes us to tremble it never causes us to tremble with the fear of the slave but merely with the holy desire that we should the one who loved us and gave himself for us and sent his son to fulfill the law on our behalf Father, we thank you for showing us these things and by your Spirit. And we pray that you'll write your word upon our hearts and help us to walk the royal road of righteousness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages John Blanchard presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982. John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, author, former co-director of Christian Ministries in Surrey, and an international conference speaker. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.